Well, welcome back, everyone, to the Whitetail Theories podcast. Back by popular demand, we have special guests Jason Hart from Nomad Outdoors and field staffer Grant Fisher. What's going on, fellas? I'm in an office on a Zoom call, and I'd much rather be deer hunting right now, Torn. <laughs> I hear you. It's that time of year. Uh, all yeah, right. Just... Uh, unfortunately. Uh... Uh, uh, unfortunately, this, uh, this this Zoom call right here doesn't have anything to do with why I'm in my office, but uh, but yeah, I'm. Uh, it is the peak of the rut uh, throughout most of the country, and I've got friends all over the country hunting, and unfortunately, I'm working today, and I need to figure out a way to change that. <laughs> Playing a little hooky, that's what you need to do. Maybe call in sick. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling a little bit of that November fever coming on, I believe. Exactly, exactly. So let's just quick do some introductions here uh, for potentially anybody that hasn't uh, listened to the podcast in the past that we did. Jason, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of give us a a rough background on who you are, what you do at Nomad, uh, that whole deal. Yeah, absolutely. I'm uh, I'm one of the co-founders of Marijuana Outdoor Incorporated, which includes two brands. Uh, One is Nomad outdoor the other is hook performance fishing um, and right now i serve as the general manager of the nomad brand so uh, when it comes to, to sales of the nomad brand as well as product development uh, that's what i handle so we're uh, uh, our company found uh, was founded in 2013 and we all quit our jobs in 14 and we started we launched uh, hook performance fishing in 2015 and then nomad later on that year uh, and so when the, with the Nomad brand, we develop uh, performance hunting product, performance hunting apparel, uh, to be more specific. So uh, our, our hunting uh, brand, Nomad, focuses on, on whitetail hunting, on springtime turkey hunting, uh, western big game hunting, and oh, not, new, for, new for this year, waterfowl hunting. So um, like I said, we've, uh, we've been in business a few years now, and things are going really really well um our fishing company hook performance fishing is uh uh is a is a fishing brand that uh started out making performance fishing apparel and since has expanded into more lifestyle but uh my background i've been in the hunting and fishing industry for roughly 20 years since i graduated clemson university uh i spent a brief time as a wildlife biologist and major in wildlife biology in in college and uh, that's how grant and i linked up grant majored in, uh, in wildlife biology at Clemson as well. And uh, long story short, Grant was uh, Grant was at Clemson the same time my niece was. So he uh, was very active in in his major as well as active in the, the National Wild Turkey Federation and called the Deer Management Association. So we, we met back then. Uh, we met back when he was in college. And, uh, and so it was kind of Clemson University's connection that got us linked up. That's pretty cool. Uh, Clemson alum, huh? Yeah, yeah, both of us. I'm class of 99. Grant's a lot younger than I am. Uh, but, yeah, man, it, uh, it seems like it was yesterday. We are uh, – we're uh, – it's a, it's a rather tight-knit university. Uh, if you, if you uh, uh, went to school there, most folks I know that go there have a lot of school spirit and, uh, and, uh, uh, and really have a lot of pride in our alma mater. Now, this year our football team is not doing as well as it has over the last 10 years, so – I think there's a lot of folks out there that went to Clemson that uh, may have not spent a lot of time in the field the last few years because they were too busy going to football games. But this year, the team's not that great. So 
I've lost I've lost a little bit of interest in uh, go, going into a deer stand on a Saturday afternoon. Uh, to me, right now, is a little more appealing than watching a watching a football team that's not playing too great. So one of the things that I noticed, I, I also am from the the wildlife biology field as well. I went to West Virginia University. Uh, go Mountaineers! That's right. Go Mountaineers! That's right. So it it seems like a lot of the um, information as far as deer studies and things like that in the southeast really comes from your guys' alma mater. You guys are kind of like the central hub for new information. Uh, do you want to kind of talk on that a little bit, Jason? And like, yeah, you know, that's kind of why I went to. I was actually looking when I was in uh, high school. My, I'm, I was born in West Virginia, and uh, I grew up a WVU football. Player, so. I was actually considering going to football, uh, going to West Virginia and went to my senior year, went to their football camp. And um, I remember reading in a deer and deer hunting magazine, uh, an article about research taking place at Clemson university uh, by uh, from a gentleman by the name of Dr. David Gwynn. And um, there was a, there was a, a handful of deer biologists that were really, uh, really active in, I'd say the seventies and eighties um, that, that, had, uh, that had come out of schools like Virginia Tech and schools like Mississippi State and Clemson and uh, really most specifically University of Georgia. And that's where a lot of the deer research came out of. And uh, uh, for those of you familiar with the NDA, the National uh, Deer Association, which they had a one of the, the formerly known as the Quality Deer Management Association, was based out of Athens, Georgia. Uh, and the reason why is, uh, is one of the, uh, a lot of the, the founding, uh, the founding fathers or the founders of the QDMA had all studied uh, under Dr. Larry Marchington at the University of Georgia. So a lot of those colleges in the South, that's where a lot of the state deer biologists and a lot of the uh, wildlife biology professors had, uh, had gotten their undergrad or their master's at the University of Georgia. Clemson University and UGA is only about an hour and 15 minutes away from each other. So there was a lot of synergies between those universities and the research that was going on, uh, and this is this is mainly back in the '80s and '90s, and uh, and really, University of Georgia has still been uh, been on the been on the forefront as far as that's concerned. But uh, but really neat. Uh, I've been keeping up. I have a couple friends that are professors uh, in 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 wildlife right now, Dr. Brett Collier and, and Dr. Mike Chamberlain, and uh, just keeping up with what's going on in the deer research world right now. It's really 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 new and exciting and. Uh, it's, it's definitely, uh, for, for you biology nerds out there, there's a lot of really cool stuff coming out with the technology, uh, changing, you know, such as, you know, obviously the internet and, uh, you know, GPS and just different things. That's really, uh, there's a lot more, there's a lot more technology in the field of wildlife biology going on now than there was 20 years ago. For sure. For sure. I get asked all the time and I want to direct this question to you what do you find the most uh translatable from the science world of deer biology to the hunting world well well you know that's a that's a really good question uh, and you know what it comes down to is i mean i grew up hunting and i majored in wildlife biology um really because you know when you're a you know, when you're a kid in middle school and a kid in high school you're when they talk about college and professions, they tell you to do something what you like to do. So I like to hunt. So really, back at that time, back in the '90s, that was really the only type of major that uh, 
that, that would, you know, that had that really had anything to do with hunting, as far as you know, as far as I was, as far as I knew, as far as it being <laughs> learning about that. So, um, you know, you, you major in wildlife biology and you learn the principles about, you know, learn the principles about uh, about how you know animals, uh, you know, what type of habitat they use and why they use that habitat. You know, particularly uh, finding out that white-tailed deer and wild turkeys are edge species, and you know, knowing kind of just knowing what to look for. I mean, if uh, you know, if you're if if you're uh, you know not educated on the on the different trees and the different habitats, um, it makes deer hunting a little bit difficult, uh, a little bit more difficult. So, so, I think the biggest thing was just uh, you know, I'd say. Um, you know, learning what type of what type of habitats and what type of food sources that that you know white-tailed deer really like it obviously turned me into a lot better hunter uh, than it did uh, than it, you know than it did before before college. And you know, just finding out just about the you know you learn you know just as an undergrad you learn you know basics about the about different behavior and about why the rut takes place when it does. Uh, you know, just based on the on the biology of deer, uh, you know, the fact that a that a, a white-tailed deer, if she's not a doe, if she's not bred, comes into cycle 28 days later. So it, just a lot of different, uh, you know, a lot of different things. And you know, uh, utilizing my wildlife uh, biology degree, I don't, I really during my, I really only utilized it a lot during my three and a half years working for the Quality Deer Management Association before you know, I got in the world of apparel, uh, but it definitely makes for uh, uh, makes for some interesting conversation and topics in hunting camps. And I like to tell folks that I'm a I'm a wannabe a wannabe biologist right now. And uh, I, basically, my uh, my undergrad career made me made me learn enough to be dangerous, I guess. So <laughs> so I uh, I definitely uh, sometimes I wonder what life would be like had I pursued the pursued the career that my degree was in. It'd, it'd be a lot different, but. Uh, but, but yeah, I've still got a lot of friends that, uh, that classmates of mine that went that route and ended up becoming professional wildlife biologists and, you know, are very, uh, are leaders in the world of deer biology and turkey biology this day and age. And that's what, a that's what, when I was a 18, 19 year old kid, that's what I thought I'd become. Little did I know that I'd be selling camouflage underwear and t-shirts for a living. Yeah, and that's that's kind of what I want to transition to here is I want to talk to the business end of the hunting industry, if you will, and then we'll go down some different rabbit holes. But speaking on, because we'll geek out about wildlife biology all day long, uh, your answer is pretty much the exact same answer that I give. That insight to habitat cover types and and food sources and understanding food sources more in depth is exactly probably the biggest takeaway Um that I learned in college to how I translated that into my hunting regime, if you will. Absolutely. And, you know, just knowing that a, that a white-tailed deer or a wild turkey is an edge species. And I, I remember in my first wildlife biology classes, as you probably did, that that was just ingrained in our head that, that more edge on a food plot was better for numerous wildlife species and that, and that white-tailed deer are early successional uh, you know, forest type species that thrive uh, on, you know, cut downs and, you know, thrive in an area where, when timber management as opposed to sometimes a wilderness area. You know, when I was a little kid uh, here in the South Carolina low country, a lot of the land that I hunted on was, was hunting clubs that were owned by timber companies. And, 
when I was in it, you know, when I was growing up as a kid, everybody in the hunting club went up when they would come through and do a clear cut of the land. Uh, you know, we would look at that and just think it was absolutely terrible because clear cuts are ugly and they're not pretty. And it, you know, makes you feel like you're cutting the woods down and nothing's going to live in there. But, you know, little, you know, until I got to college and I was educated on the fact that these white-tailed deer are early successional species. And when you cut down a bunch of 35 year old pines in a pine plantation and it opens up that soil for the first time in, in 20 plus years that a lot of the, a lot of the seed bed that was underneath that was covered up by pine needles and wasn't allowed to get sunlight is now opened up and it turns into an absolute white-tailed deer smorgasbord. So, you know, little things like that, that, uh, that sometimes I, you, you learn that the, some, it's not the prettiest mature woods that make the best place to kill a, kill a deer. Uh, so, so little things like that is, uh, were, were things that, that, that I took away and, you know, I still utilize to this day, uh, other things that, uh, you know, being educated on, uh, on, let's say a, a prescribed burn, uh, back then, you know, after, after somebody, after a, a piece of property that I was hunting and, it was burnt down. I would have never thought that, that you could find wild turkeys in that in that type of environment, you know, as soon as a day after that burn took place. But that's very far from the, the truth. Turns out they well love hanging out in there. So as soon as the, the greens and the forbs come up from a prescribed burn. So just little things like that, little takeaways really, uh, you know, I guess really uh, I, I still, still keep some, you know, some of that knowledge that I learned to this day, you know, utilizing in hunting. For sure. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Well, let's, let's transition here and let's get into, uh, the business side of things. Uh, so Jason, my first question to you is how often do you get asked, how do I get into the outdoor industry? You know, a good bit. Um, you know, a lot of folks, a lot of folks, it's a, it's a really cool, it's a really cool business to be in most of the time. Um, but you know, like like any kind of job, it's it's definitely has its ups and downs. Uh, uh, you know, the, that, that's a question I get often. How do I get into it? Because you know, from the from the outside looking in, most folks think that you have a job in the hunting industry that you get to go around and hunt all the time, and that you get to go to all these amazing places and do that. Before this podcast started, I told you that uh, you know I have I have I've hunted less this year than I have in. Uh, in all of my adult life, so uh, so it's uh, it's it's definitely a takeaway. Not everybody that a lot of, most a lot of folks get in the hunting industry because they like to hunt, uh, but or you know get in the outdoor industry because they like to hunt or fish. But uh, but sometimes the business gets in the way. Um, you know, for example, this weekend the absolute prime of the rut, and I would have would have loved to spend the whole weekend in a deer stand. Unfortunately, I had to work a you know a trade show event to you know sell product, but. You know, the biggest thing right now, it's a whole heck of a lot easier to get in the hunting and fishing industries now than it was 20 plus years ago, uh, mainly because the internet, you know, you can, you can have access to just about any person that is in the hunting industry via social media or through, you know, contacts, whereas that, that wasn't the case when I got started. Um, but, the, you know, the biggest thing is networking, and it's a lot easier to network now than it was, you know, with, uh, with, with different websites such as LinkedIn and such as Facebook and things like that. You know, I get a lot of, um, I get a lot of, uh, in particular college age students that hit me up and say, man, I'd love to do what you do for a living. And, you know, I, my biggest, uh, 
you know, my biggest, uh, you know, statement that I tell them is just, hey, make as many, many contacts as you can, network, and realize that uh, that a lot of the, the classmates that you may have in college right now, or people you may meet at a convention or something like like that, might be somebody that you could go in business with one day, or that might be somebody that hires you one day. So, um, so yeah, I've made, uh, you know, I made connections back in when I was a student at Clemson. Uh, through wildlife conferences, through uh, connections. I, I made contacts with people that I, I keep to this day 25 years later. So, you know, the biggest thing is networking and networking. It's easier now to network than it ever has been just based off the internet, based off social media, which, uh, you know, when I was up and coming, that wasn't, that wasn't the case. But my, uh, my first job out of college, I went to work for uh, a startup um, waterfowl brand that was expanding into more hunting called Avery Outdoors. Um, I went to work for them in, in 2000, and one of my first bosses that, you know, I really, I pestered the heck out of those folks because I thought it was a cool brand and wanted to work for them, and uh, I ended up taking a job in, a, in, a, in an area far away from my home to get my start, and you know, my boss, one of my bosses at the time had told me that it's it's really, uh, he says, it's hard to get in the hunting industry, but it's even harder to get out. So <laughs> it seems like once folks get in the hunting industry and make a lot of connections and, and network and make friends that, you know, people's, people's careers tend, tend to blossom from, uh, from getting, getting there. And, you know, it's, it's like anything else. My job on a day-to-day basis is in sales. And I would say that, that 90% of my job is, is dealing with with basic sales principles and dealing with you know dealing with computer systems and I could be selling anything I could be selling uh, any kind of widget that's out there but it just so happens that I'm selling camouflage hunting clothes so it's uh so it, it's it's uh, you know any type of business principles uh, relate to the hunting industry but you know the the, the cool new the cool the cool thing about it is is most of their uh, at least most of my customer base and you know, most folks that get into the outdoors industry get into it because they have a passion for that. And at the very least, most folks that get in the outdoor industry are, are pretty like-minded as far as, uh, as what they like to do in their, in their free time. For sure. So I, I kind of want to circle back here. Uh, I've only been in the outdoor industry on and off for the past 15 years. You've gotten to see both with how things have changed where it's more of the in-person relationship one-on-one nurturing those relationships to now like you said where you have access almost to anybody anywhere with the internet social media so on and so forth how do you go about nurturing those new relationships and then uh maintaining those relationships in in such like a fast pace and in your position where you have a daily demand and being pulled multiple directions all the time yeah, you know, it's tough. It really is, uh, you know, particular with, you know, having hundreds and hundreds of customers uh, and, you know, just making, you know, relationships. The biggest thing is there are so many different ways to communicate now via telephone, via text, via email, via Facebook, via Instagram, via LinkedIn, via TikTok, via, you know, all these different ways. So, you know, the biggest thing is, is uh, you know, it, it, it's almost like, you know, any other any other type of job or any other you know, type of industry, uh, you know, making those relationships and, and, and ultimately trying to take care of people and uh, do what you say and, 
uh, and do your best best to help folks out. Uh, the one thing about the hunting industry and the outdoor industry, the fishing industry is is uh, is most folks typically hang around this industry. So, you know, you may have a competitor one day that, uh, or you may have a buyer one day that ends up being your boss, or vice versa. You may have somebody that uh, that that you may not see eye to eye with in one job, and five years down the road. They might be working for you, or vice versa. So, uh, you know, the biggest thing is is there's uh, is is just taking care of folks and being right to folks, and uh, and realizing that it's not uh, burning bridges in this industry won't get you very far because uh, more than likely there's going to be those people are going to be in the industry 10, 15 years down the road. And I can name example after example. Right now, I sit here in my office. And uh, on our executive team, one of my old fraternity brothers that I met during, during my days at Clemson University, one of those guys, another guy that's on our executive team at one time was a competitor of mine and ended up becoming my buyer and then ended up coming to work for us. Uh, another gentleman ended up being a co-worker in a former job. And uh, I got him hired uh, when we both worked at Under Armour back in back in the early 2000s, and now he's the president of our company. So, um, you know, just maintaining those relationships is, uh, has been the key to my career and just taking care of people. Um, like I said, most folks in the, to get in the outdoor industry, uh, most folks most folks are good people and most folks are very like-minded. And it's really neat over the years to see folks that, that you work with at one capacity uh, in one job, change roles and do something completely different down the road. And that's, you know, just remember, remembering who those people were, uh, you know, remembering where you come, came from is, is really, uh, I, I, I certainly would suggest that to anybody because, uh, because you never know when, you never know when your competitor or when somebody that, uh, uh, that somebody that you may have a not see eye to eye with, um, uh, years down the road becomes part of your team. For sure. And I think people don't realize from the outside looking in how small the industry is. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It is. And it's, you know, every, everybody knows everybody for the exactly. most part. After after you're in the industry for a while, uh, you know, I, I, I'm in the hunting and fishing industry. It's, uh, you know, most folks, most folks uh, go to a lot of the same trade shows and visit the same customers and things like that there's only there's really only so many hunting and fishing stores in the country and uh and so many trade shows and um, a lot of our business gets done going to these various shows and various events and you know after if you do it for if you do it for long enough you're going to run into the same people every year multiple times at multiple different locations so it's kind of funny during uh really the busiest the busiest times of the year for the hunting industry uh, would be the months of January and February. There's a lot of different trade shows at that time. And those, those different trade shows could be um, business to business marketing type trade shows. They could be uh, what I, what we call buying group shows where a lot of uh, independent retailers go to visit different vendors, or it could be consumer shows. And a lot of different people, like something like, for example, the role I'm in, I, I have to work those multiple different kinds of shows and, you may, you know, we probably do about, uh, we do about a dozen shows during those two months. Wow. And it's kind of funny. You run into the same people this week. You'll be with them in Phoenix. The next week you'll be with them in Fort Worth. The next week you'll be with them in Nashville. The week after you'll be with them in Minneapolis. The next week in Las Vegas. And so it's kind of like a, 
kind of like a uh, it's very similar to the uh, to the music business. Whereas you get different acts that go to different different venues and uh, all over the country, and people run into run into the same people over and over again. Right. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you too was what were some of the trials and tribulations that you went through when you first started? You said you started Huck first. Well, we actually, uh, we knew we were going to start both brands when we started, but uh, it, it, the way that the business worked out and the seasonality of it, we ended up starting Hook first, yes. But but when we went to investors, we let them know we actually, uh, we had a uh, we had a, several other brand ideas as, as well. Uh, none of them stuck, but but yes, there uh, we've run through many, many, many trials and tribulations uh, since we since we started this venture back in 2013. Uh, so there were there were numerous roadblocks along the way, and you know some of those could come from the from a standpoint of investors to uh, to customers that that wouldn't uh, that wouldn't say yes the first time to. Um, you know, to, to the banks, to, uh, you know, to, to the market, to, to, to competitors that were keeping us out of various accounts and things like that. So, you know, we ran into multiple roadblocks along the way, but just, uh, just kept at it. And we were, we were fortunate than most uh, when we got our start because of, uh, because of our relationships and experience in the industry. Um, Three out of four of us that started the Hook and Nomad brands had worked together at Under Armour, uh, and two out of four of us worked in sales at Under Armour, and we uh, we basically were in charge of the majority of the sales for the hunting and fishing side of Under Armour. So we'd work with the customer base of the the outdoor apparel side for years, and we knew everybody, and we knew who those players were, and we knew how to market the product. Um, so it was the, the, our biggest challenges were, were finding places to build product, uh, finding good people to help us build those products and, and, and really finding the capital that it takes to start a company. Uh, it's not easy, uh, to, to get money, um, to, to start, start off new brands. And when you start off the banks, it takes a little while before the banks will loan you some money. So those were all, uh, those were all definitely challenges, but we we built a good team, and you know over the years we've had so we've had lots of leadership changes, and we've lost some good people and added some great people, and uh, it's been a it's been quite the quite the run. We're we're definitely not done yet. We've got a lot of lot of work left to do, um, but it's uh, but yeah, it's um you know starting a starting a company from scratch and, and getting it off, uh, you know doesn't matter what it is for the most part is is pretty difficult in particular when you're four guys that don't really have any money at all to start it with. Right, right. Uh, one of the big things that I think is really tough for new companies and then uh, even even companies that are relatively established is maintaining or driving home that brand identity and establishing that with your customer base, with your market, and then if you potentially have to maybe rebrand a little bit as times change, uh, having to do that as well. So like, what did you do and what did your team do as you guys were getting started to really drive home that brand identity? Well, you know, that's a good question. Um, our biggest thing, you know, as far as from a branding standpoint, uh, was, and you know, this is, 
this is really, um, you know, this is a, a, this could be a whole marketing discussion in itself, but our brands, we, we understood that, that first off, you know, to, to, to have a good brand, you know, first off, you have to make good product. Uh, you have to have a good product to sell. You know, you can blow smoke and mirrors and create an unbelievable image, but if you don't have the meat and potatoes, if you don't have a context behind the message you're trying to do, uh, you're not going to get anywhere. So the biggest thing was we, you know, was we had to, um, we had to build good product first. Uh, you know, number two, um, we had to build a good team to make sure that that product could get out to the, get out to the consumers. Uh, and then we, you know, we ultimately had to tell a great story. Um, so, you know, that's another thing is telling a, telling a really good story. And then finally, you know, once you get the, you know, we had a lot of customers that would, would, we would meet with customers and they would say, Hey, you did us right in your past life. We're going to give you a chance. But if the product doesn't sell, you're on your own. And, you know, fortunately for us, the product is sold and over the years it's done that. So, you know, the biggest thing is, uh, you know, there's the biggest thing is, is, is first being true and authentic um, to your brand, you know, whatever, whatever that is that you're trying to sell, whether that's, whether that's selling hats, whether that's selling logo or whether that's selling, you know, marketing digital platform, whatever that is, you know, you, number one, people can, people can, uh, can tell when it's fake and, uh, and folks can tell when it's authentic. Um, and that's, uh, you know, that's one of the biggest things that we've done. So we're, we also realize that, you know, everything is in particular this day and age, everything's ridiculously competitive. Um, you know, anybody can have a t-shirt and get a t-shirt made and put a logo on it, but how's that t-shirt different from everybody else's t-shirt or how's that hat different from everybody else's hat? And, you know, ultimately, you know, for us, we like to say that we, you know, we want to sell lots of hats and t-shirts, but, you know, to be an authentic apparel brand, you got to have some really good apparel first, you know, so folks want to buy that hat and want to buy that t-shirt and want to buy that, that hoodie, that sweatshirt. Um, and that's, you know, that's basically, um, you know, from a branding standpoint is one thing that we did, which was not the, the smartest thing. One thing that you, if you, you're in a business class, uh, or if you're a, uh, you know, you, you know, accounting or, you know, if there's somebody out there listening that might be in the, the, the private equity sector or the banking sector or whatever. One thing that we did off the get-go, which was not smart at all, we spent way more money on marketing than we should have. Uh, the, the bad part of that was we were spending more than we could afford. The good part of that is it got the brand out there. So, you know, this day and age, though, you know, it's a lot easier to market. It's getting, you know, the, it's, it's, it's getting easier but getting more competitive to market because anybody can build a social media page uh, to market your product. And the entire, uh, the hunting industry and most industries as a whole are, are switching from, from television and from print ad, even though those are still very viable media sources, digital is, uh, has become king in that world. Uh, the thing about it is though, there's millions and millions and millions of digital pages out there. So, you know, what are you doing to differentiate yourself uh, from, from everybody else out there? And that, that comes down to the content that you create and the story that you tell. So did you guys originally, when you started your marketing, go through, go right into the storytelling side of things and less of 
like that traditional uh here here's a big deer here's the products side of things you know what i mean like that tr- the the old school traditional tv style of marketing yeah no absolutely we and you know it's funny when we first started our brand our nomad brand and i'm just going to speak specifically to our nomad brand not so much our hook brand is it's definitely uh it's apples to oranges and at first you know when we started our company outdoor television was by far the biggest avenue to market and there were lots of different you know five ten years ten years ago ten fifteen years ago hunting celebrities had become you know everybody there were lots of hunting celebrities and you know lots of them they had tv shows and they were hunting with country music singers and driving around in big tour buses and look like and hanging out with all these different celebrities and things like that. When we first started our brand, that was still the trend. Um, in the last five years, it seems that those trends have kind of gone away and it's a lot more digital. There's less hunting industry celebrities, if you will. Um, there's less, less people that are, that are making their living hunting, you know, 15 years ago, uh, if you had, if you had a little bit of money, um, you could start a hunting television show, and if it was good, then you could you could make a name for yourself. Nowadays, it's becoming less and less of that. But when we first started our brand, we said, "Do we want to do that or be different from everybody else?" So, so we dabbled at first, and we said, "We're going to try to do a faceless hunter as our as our, our as our marketing plan." So we came out with a faceless hunter, no name, and decided we weren't going to sign any celebrities. And then, you know, it came down to it. There were a lot of different uh, well-known people that we had, uh, you know, whether they were industry folks or, or different things that wanted to wear our product. And it, it, we, I think we were a little, we were a little before our time uh, as far as just sticking to digital and, and sticking to a, to a theme. And, it's crazy in the last six years that's really changed and the the hunting industry celebrity status is uh, there's still you know people still look up to a lot of the 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 traditional heroes out there but um you know it's funny we're we're now kind of reverting back to where we started from as far as our marketing stance is concerned and we want to be known as every man's brand um and let the product do the talking and we're going to build good product but we're going to be affordable product that, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to take a, uh, you know, you don't have to take a loan out to buy a complete set of our product, uh, you know, for the most part, but we're going to be up there as far as, as quality is concerned. So, um, you know, one thing that we're going to be doing, you'll be seeing in Nomad print ads in the future is, you know, there's, uh, I am, uh, uh, you know, and I've been very guilty of this in the past is, is, Hey, at, at one time, everybody just wanted to know what that buck scored and, uh, you know, how big is that deer and what's the net score on it? And we, um, you know, being every man's brand, you'll, you'll, you will see a lot more, um, imagery coming from us that is getting kind of back to the reason why we all started hunting. It was all about being in hunting camp and it was all about the excitement of the hunt. And it was all about, you know, why, why did you, why did you first start hunting? It wasn't, it wasn't so you could kill a 170-inch whitetail and post it on Instagram to brag in front of everybody and get some type of endorsement. That wasn't. That's not the um, the purpose of why most people get into hunting. They got into hunting because it's fun. 
And, uh, and that's what we really want to strive to kind of tell that story where we're taking our brand and, and we want to build, we're building, we're building hunting clothing. We're building really good hunting clothing for the everyday person. Now, if you happen to be a celebrity or you happen to be a doctor or lawyer with a lot of disposable income and you want to wear our product, we're, I think you're going to find that it's absolutely fantastic product. But if you don't have a lot of disposable income and you're very blue collar and you're, uh, you know, you're living paycheck to paycheck, we want you to be able to afford our product as well. So that's kind of where we're positioning our, our Nomad brand, kind of where we started. It's, it's, it's every man's brand. Um, and that's, that's kind of, kind of the, uh, what you'll see, um, what you, what, what we kind of started our brand as and what we're going to be, uh, what we're going to be doing more of in the future. I really like that. Uh, I think one of the big things that kind of hinders outdoor companies is they, they niche themselves down too small and they, they go after a market share that's real, 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 real small. Now it makes it easier to concentrate your marketing in there. And you could potentially get more of that market, that that small market share, because your total concentration's there. But out of the twenty-seven billion dollar industry, you're uh, you're really only getting less than one percent of that when you get yeah, yourself down that small. And you know, I'm I'm personally I've I've been fortunate that I've got to, I've been, I've been able to personally I've been able to hunt in every state in America. Um, I've hunted Canada, Mexico, Argentina, Africa, uh, all over the place. And, um, yes, there's some awesome brands out there that, that are focused on say a sheep hunter. And you know what? They build awesome product for the sheep hunter, but what, what's the, the grand total number of sheep hunters out there? There's exactly. not, not a whole lot now with that being said, we make product that you can use on a sheep hunt, but you can still, and it's a great product. And it'll it'll withstand any sheep hunt. I've been on two doll sheep hunts myself in Alaska, uh, and we build product that that can be used on a sheep hunt. But that exact same product can be used on a white-tailed deer hunt in Pennsylvania, uh, and, and 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 cost you know a third of the price. So that's kind of where we're positioned. We understand that the the number one uh, you know the number one the number one chased animal in, in America is a white-tailed deer. And that's really where we got started. We want to be a great white-tailed brand. And, and then we realized, you know, that 93% of all, or 93% of all turkey hunters white-tailed hunt. Uh, you know, obviously turkey hunting is a big part of ours. And waterfowl hunting, obviously waterfowl hunting is has gained a tremendous amount of popularity over the last few years. And we we, uh, we stayed out of the waterfowl market for the first five years of our inception. Uh, there was a lot of crowd in the waterfowl market about five years ago when when the, the fine folks at Duck Dynasty uh, created such the craze. And, you know, when that, that noise kind of faded out, uh, you know, there's there's great waterfowl brands out there, but we decided, hey, we're going to, um, yeah, we're going to get in the waterfowl business, but we're going to try to do it a little bit different. So, so yes, we're, you know, we cater to, uh, we're going to make product and we don't have every single thing that every kind of niche hunter needs. For example, Upland, you know, we've not got in the upland best business yet. We've not, uh, you know, we've not built a built a great, we've not built a great pheasant hunting vest or a great quail hunting vest yet. We probably will in the future, but, but yeah, there um we're, we're we build a lot of product, which the, the the thickest part of my catalog is called core, and that that core section section has everything from 
base layer to outer wear that can be worn on a waterfowl hunt. It can be worn on a whitetail hunt. It can be worn on a sheep hunt. It can be worn on an elk hunt. It can be worn on a pheasant hunt. So that's kind of where um, where my head is as far as you know continuing this brand. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna be getting into the niche side of it, but we want to make uh, we want to make product for the masses. And uh, you know, uh, if there's one exception to that, and that's it's completely my fault, and I'm gonna take full blame for it. Uh, we are somewhat of a niche brand on the turkey side of the business, just because I'm such a passionate turkey hunter. <laughs> we put we put a lot more innovation in our turkey product than than I think anybody on the in the in the market does, and that's uh, it's <laughs> I'm very guilty of that. So yes, if there was one one niche market that we've uh, we have completely um, we've completely got a lot of market share in, uh, and we're very more we're in it, we're, we're ridiculously innovative in the space as the turkey side of the business. Let me let me ask you this. So, what do you think? I got two questions for you. <clears throat> What do you think are like the four kings of like the hunting industry, if you will, like the four species that you would say are the four kings? And then uh, I notice with a lot of your uh, products, you guys are kind of in that same realm as like you were saying that uh, that superior product line where you have a more uh, I'm trying to think of the terminology your cuts are more geared towards a specific individual rather than gearing it towards a one size fits all. Yeah. I, you know, I, as far as four Kings are concerned, I don't, I don't know that that's a, a, I don't know that you can narrow it to four, but you know, obviously right now uh, you've got the, you got the white tailed deer, uh, you know, which is the, which is by far the, you know, the most, the most more hunting licenses are purchased for the white tailed deer in the country. Than anything uh, then we've got the upland world which upland kind of consists of of uh, the dove hunting market which is more uh in the southern regions in texas uh the pheasant hunting which is mostly a majority in the midwest uh you've got quail hunting which is uh is is, is becoming less and less throughout the, most of the country unfortunately but that's in the in the southern the midwestern uh uh, the the Texas regions, and, and then of course you've got the grouse and the woodcock, uh, which is uh, which is amongst in the northern areas. Uh, the western big game markets, uh, you know, in our mind consist of, you know, you've got elk hunters, you've got uh, you've got mule deer hunters, you've got antelope hunters, you've got sheep hunters and mountain goat hunters, uh, and then obviously waterfowl, which is uh, all your ducks and your geese species. So. A lot of our product, um, you know, we try to we try to cut it for the masses. And a lot of our product, um, like I said, our core product. I'm looking at some products hanging up on my rack right now, and there's a vest that we designed for for glassing in western areas. There's a it's a hooded vest made out of Prima Loft. And sitting here looking at it, and I'm trying to think what I could not hunt in that vest, and I can't think of anything that it would not be. Applicable to, applicable to, as far as keeping you warm, uh, and it could work in waterfowl. It could work on a sheep hunt. It could work on a deer hunt. It could work. Uh, it could work in. You could wear it in any state in America and hunt any kind of critter that's out there. So that's kind of what we do a lot of. Um, you know, I get a lot of people that'll say, "Hey, why don't you make a pair of pants that has a pocket to hold a turkey slate paw?" 
Well, the reason I don't make that is because your deer hunter or your elk hunter or your sheep hunter doesn't want to have an extra strap on his pants to you run a turkey call with. So, you know, a lot of the pants, a lot of the shirts, a lot of the jackets, a lot of the base layer we make, you know, does not have a niche purpose to it so that we can carry it over to different seasons and different regions. Um, it's, it's pretty funny. Some of our, our most popular pants um, are, is the number one, the number one selling pant we sell in Florida is the number one pant what we sell in Washington state. Uh, and it can be used on in all those different environments. Uh, and it's you know, a lot of it, a lot of it's based on cold weather. And, you know, we can, we can differentiate. You can make the same exact pant and put it in a, uh, our newest waterfowl pattern, put it in mossy oak migrate, and it's going to work equally, equally well for a duck hunter in South Louisiana when it's 90 degrees outside hunting in a blind as it would on a antelope hunt in New Mexico uh, hunting out of a blind as well as it would in a dove field in South Carolina. So you know, we like to make products that have multiple, uh, that, 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 that work for multiple species. And of course we do get into niche areas and as we grow and try to get more innovative, we will, but, you know, I think our core, our core product will, will definitely, uh, you know, definitely fall under a lot of different categories. And we do that, we do that on purpose. Yeah. That's pretty awesome that your, your, your pieces cross over so well. Um, that, that's great because that leads me into my next section. So here in Pennsylvania in three weeks, our rifle season kicks off and every year I see, or, uh, I hear complaining about my gear wasn't warm enough. My gear wasn't this, my gear wasn't that blah, blah, blah. <clears throat> so one of the things, uh, I wanted you to go over Jason was how to go about layering with your guys' system. Cause I think that's one of the most misunderstood, uh, misunderstood kind of like intricacies about outdoor apparel is yeah you can you can buy a certain piece that is cold weather gear but if you don't design it properly as far as like how you layer for it you're it's not going to be effective yeah absolutely and i got this question i got this question at our sales meeting last week we had all our sales reps in the country down to atlanta georgia and so everybody could fly in in one day and fly out the next somebody said why don't you put the temperature ranges on apparel and this is something I learned, you know, back when I worked at Under Armour, and it, it applies in the in the world of sports, it applies in the world of mountaineering, it applies in the world of skiing, it applies in the world of hunting. And you know, everybody is different. You know, Grant, um, Grant Fisher on this call weighs a lot less than I do, and he's got a lot less, he's got a lot less uh, layers between his skin and his bones. So Grant may have to wear on a on a 40 degree morning, Grant may have to wear an extra la- more uh, one extra layer than I do to be comfortable. So layering, you know, it's layering is very much, um, you know, catered to the person. For the most part, I can tell you exactly what you need, but you know, obviously, you start with a base layer, and base layers are super important. That's what's against your skin, and base layers do a couple different things. Number one, base layers add insulation to your body. Uh, number two, they create a layer between uh, between the base layer and the mid layer and or the outer layer, which traps heat. Uh, and then number three, they wick moisture. So, you know, any kind of base layer is very important. And then 
you know, you don't have to wear a mid layer, but you can if you need an extra mid layer. And a mid layer is usually something a little more thin that can go under your insulated or waterproof layer. And then finally, your outer layer. Um, and your, your outer layer can vary on the really the species you hunt. So we make products, we make insulated products that have Prima Loft insulation, which is the warmest insulation out there. We also make products that have um, breathable waterproof laminates and or windproof laminates. So a laminate in an outer shell is very important because that'll keep number one, the rain, the snow off of you, but it also keeps the wind off of you and holds heat in. So your outer layer depends on a number of different factors. Number one, your, your activity. Number two, how quiet you need that product to be. You know, a waterfowl hunter doesn't really need quiet product. For the most part, you know, they're, they're, all, they're holding still for a little while, and then all of a sudden all the kinds of noise breaks out and you start shooting the, start shooting the duck for the geese, whereas a white-tailed bow hunter needs something extremely quiet so he can get his bow drawn back on that animal. Uh, whereas a Western big game rifle hunter, if they're sheep hunting or if they're elk hunting, may not need something quite as quiet because they may, you know, have a, they may be, they may have a hundred to 500 to thousand yard shot on an animal and they're more concerned about, you know, having wind protection. So, you know, a lot of that is based on, um, you know, is based on the species that you pursue. So, you know, we make, uh, you know, if, if you were to take a good quality, we make two different kinds of base layer. We have a, a wool, a merino wool, very lightweight base layer. Then we offer a heavier base layer. And, you know, if it's super cold, I'm going to put our merino wool base layer on first, which is pretty thin, pretty lightweight. And then if it's, if it's in sub-freezing temperatures that I don't need to do a lot of walking, I'll use what we call our cottonwood base layer, which is a a Berber fleece base layer that will that will keep you super insulated. Now, that cottonwood base layer, if you're doing a lot of walking, say on an elk hunt out west, that's not the kind of base layer you want to wear. But if you're hunting in Pennsylvania on opening day or rifle season and it's sub-freezing temperatures and you're not planning on doing a tremendous amount of walking, then that's the that's the base layer for you. So layering is super important. And, you know, a lot of people you know, I, in particular, on a, on a, let's say, an elk hunt is an extremely important layering hunt. Um, an elk hunt, you'll take off walking, and, you know, you'll generate, in the, in the mornings it's cold, you'll generate a lot of sweat walking up a mountain, but you also want to stay insulated. And then later, uh, you know, you can take those, uh, as far as layering is concerned, the beauty of it is, is you can, if it gets too warm, you can remove a layer. So, um, so yeah, layering super important, and uh, you know we, that's one thing that we offer. We offer everything from uh, you know the base layer, base layer to you know mid layer to outer outer layer, and uh, you know everything in between that'll keep a hunter from comfortable from sub freezing temperatures to a hundred degrees plus, and it just you know varies on the you know a lot of hunts in particular. Uh, you know, here, heck, here in South Carolina last week, I woke up, it was, uh, it was 41 degrees and then, uh, you know, it warmed up to 75. So, you know, 35 degree temperature change is common in many parts of the country. And it, that makes for a tough day. You don't need, you know, you know, you, if it's 70 degrees in Bluebird, you don't need to worry about layering as much as you do. If you're going to be sitting out all day, 
deer hunting in Pennsylvania and the high is going to be 32 degrees. So, um, you know, layering is, uh, layering's crucial. And, you know, a lot of folks growing up, and I think it's, I think hunters are getting more educated now, but growing up, everybody wanted a super, super warm, heavy insulated jacket. And in many cases, you really don't need a jacket, you know, the warmest jacket that a company makes or the warmest insulated piece, because that limits, limits the amount of different uh, situations that you can use that piece in. So, you know, it's, I, I'm, obviously I'm, I'm a, a, a little different case scenario because I've worked for apparel companies for 20 years. So I could wear camouflage based on what I've got in my storage unit in my house. I could wear a different piece of camouflage every day of the year, uh, just on what I've accumulated working <laughs> for different companies over the years. But, you know, every single hunt that I go on in a different part of the country, in a different region of the country, I'll pack differently. Uh, you know, and I'll check the weather, I'll check the weather channel before I go. I'm, I'm going uh, gun hunting in Illinois this weekend, and you know the the, the gear I wear is gonna it may be I, I'm I'm gonna have to look at the weather, but it may be identical to the the gear that I wore Saturday night bow hunting in Maryland. Even though I'm hunting nearly a thousand miles away, I might wear the exact same thing, but obviously I have to put orange on over the top of it. But you know what? It maybe if it's colder than what I was hunting in Maryland this weekend, then I may have to add a couple extra layers what I've already packed so yeah it uh it can get confusing as far as layering is concerned and every day I answer questions about that and it's uh you know we make we make a lot of different products that can you can interchange back and forth and you know on the same hunt two guys might be wearing two different jackets or two different base layers or two different mid layers but it still accomplishes the same job so you know we can you know out of our our catalog you could I mean there's there's a thousand different combinations that you could wear that you can tailor to, to basically your needs because you know a rifle hunt in Pennsylvania is very different from a antelope hunt in uh, you know in Utah versus a versus a deer hunt in North Florida versus uh, you know versus a duck hunt on the eastern shore of Maryland so um, we try to make you know we're we we I think we can pretty much have just about every hunter covered in the country for just about every element you need in what we design and we keep we keep that in mind and uh it can definitely it can definitely be confusing out there to a consumer on deciding deciding what exactly they need for sure and i kind of just to piggyback off of uh what you said there so you can pretty much get away with an entire hunting season with five pieces to your kit so you have your base layer like you said that you can wear all early season. Then you have your mid layer, which you can wear from, let's just say anywhere from October to the middle of November. And then you have that outer shell. Yeah, absolutely. And and I'll be honest with you, just, you know, for my, let's say I'm, I'm talking about myself on the various hunts that I've been on this year, been on a, been on an elk hunt. And uh, I was on elk hunt, New Mexico, done some early season, a little bit of early season deer hunting in Georgia and South Carolina uh, some, some mid season deer hunting in Maryland and Illinois. And I'm probably gonna do some late season, uh, deer hunting in, in Maryland and Georgia. So, yeah, I mean, truthfully, um, you know, with, I can get away with, um, you know, what we call our pursuit pants and our pursuit shirt, which is super lightweight, moisture wicking, four way stretch product. Um, I can use our Merino base layer, and then I can take our harvester jacket and harvester pant 
and I'm pretty much can I I can pretty much wear a combination of those of those uh, six pieces. I can wear a combination of that, and I can be comfortable from sub freezing to 100 degrees in any application. Exactly. Yep. So yeah, exactly. now we we make some more specialized stuff, and we've got we've got product uh, coming out next year that'll be warmer than the harvester and. Uh, but, but yeah, for the most part, you can, you can get away. Like I said, if it was, uh, you know, I, I you can mix and match, for example, our, our Merino base layer, I can wear that underneath our lighter weight pants on an elk hunt and out in, in Western climates where it's dry, you know what, at 30 degrees, that'll, that'll keep me warm. And then, you know, our heavier weight harvester pant, which is, uh, which has got a high pile fleece on the inside and a two way laminate. I can wear that same base layer with the harvester pants and the, the, the jacket combination when I'm hunting in Illinois, when it's, when it's uh, 15 degrees uh, and the wind's blowing. So, so yeah, it's a, that's a, that's a, that's a good, a good analogy. You can, uh, you know, you, with a, with a layering system, if you, you can get away from, from, uh, you know, three sets of leggings or pants, if you will, and three jacket hoodie base layer combos, if you will, and get away with an awful lot. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. Um, one of the questions I had, so your guys' merino with that four-way stretch. Now, is that a composite? Do you guys have a little bit of nylon in there? It is, yeah. And I, I'll tell you what, we, um, I am really, really excited about our new Durawool that just came out. Um, we didn't have great samples of it last year because obviously last year when we products started coming back, it was when COVID hit. We didn't have the finalized product. I saw some some swatches and some fabrics, but you know, until you, it's, it's really difficult until you get a finished production piece and you wear it, you don't really know what you have. You don't know how good or how bad it is. And yeah, I can tell you one thing, our new Durwell base layer might be some of the best base layer that I've ever worn. And I sold a tremendous amount of base layer over, over the last 20 years. So yeah, it's got um, our, our lightweight Durwell is 170 gsm that's grams a square meter uh it's it, the weight of that feels a little bit heavier than a cotton t-shirt uh than a heavy cotton t-shirt but yeah we put it's 60 percent merino 30 percent nylon and 10 percent spandex and for any of the listeners out there that's not worn wool base layer or merino base layer the great thing about merino base layers is number one it'll keep you warm Number two, it's moisture wicking. Number three, it doesn't hold odor. It's got natural antimicrobial aspects in the wool fibers. So it makes just for a fantastic base layer. The bad thing about merino wools, the majority on the market, is they're not very durable. They wear out quickly over time. Uh, in particular, if you're doing a lot of walking, a lot of moving uh, with a pair of leggings, for example. So we added that 30% nylon, which nylon gives it strength and makes it a lot more durable. But yeah, I, I'm going to be wearing our Durawool base layer. It's literally, I've been wearing, I wore it working in the yard the other day uh, in South, when it was 50 degrees under a hoodie. And I found myself, I found myself wearing it all day long, uh, sweating, not working out in my yard and it doesn't stink. It feels it's super soft and comfortable to the skin. And if you've never worn a Merino wool base layer, you know, most folks think a wool is being itchy, but Merino is not at all. It's super soft and, then we've 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 made a pair of boxer briefs in uh, in the in the uh, our, our Durwool fabric, and I'm I'm wearing them today. I'm wearing them on a casual day in the office because they're so comfortable. 
So, um, so yeah, I'm, I'm really, really, really excited about our new durable base layer. Uh, five years ago, when we first, uh, when we first got our start, yeah, you know, I mentioned a company we all worked for in the past, or, or not all of us, but some of our executives, and we sold a lot of base layer. The majority of the base layer we put, we sold was, was polyester base layer with a lot of lycra to it. Uh, and we flooded the market, absolutely flooded the market in the, in the mid 2000s up into about 2015. And so we kind of didn't really focus on base layer a lot in the past, but this new stuff we've made has just got me, it's, it might be the, it, it's, it's nothing, uh, you know, it, from a technical standpoint, the, the fabric is very technical. Uh, the, the, the silhouettes aren't too technical. It's basically leggings, a crew neck and a, and a uh, quarter zip hoodie, but they are really good pieces of, uh, of apparel. Yeah. So, I mean, you pretty much took the words right out of my mouth. Uh, the, the big issue, like you said, with Merino is it's not very durable. I have, I have a really, I, I have a shirt that I really like and I wear it all season long and it looks like a spider web. There's so many holes yep. in it. Uh, so that's, I was, that's what I was going to ask you was about this durable. Uh, if you guys put nylon in it to make it more durable, because that seems like it's going to absolutely crush. And I'm, I'm extremely interested in that piece right there. Yeah. I, I, you know, I'll be honest with Torn. It's funny you mentioned that because uh, back five years ago, I went on a doll sheep hunt in Alaska and um, sheep hunting is, is you literally as far as a base layer as far as boxers or whatever on a sheep hunt um at least the kind of doll sheep hunting i was doing you know the outfitter would take you up in the you know in a valley where there's rivers and things like that and you don't you don't you don't bathe for many days at a time mm-hmm. um my first sheep hunt was six days and my second was 13. And if you can imagine going 13 days without having a shower, I, I mean, I'm the kind of guy I take one or two showers a day, every day. Going on a sheep hunt for 13 days, you don't take a shower. <laughs> and wool is the only thing. I don't care if your product has got antimicrobial treatment in it. I don't care what it has. After 13 days, stuff's going to stink. And wool is literally, after 13 days, as far as a base layer next to your skin, the only thing that won't reek after 13 days. And so before, after my first sheep hunt, um, I said, you know what? I'm going to buy a pair of Merino wool boxers, boxer briefs from my second sheep hunt. So I bought three pairs of them to last me the 12-day the hunt. It ended up going 13 days. But I bought them from a big-name um, outdoor retailer brand. Not a hunting industry brand, but a big-name outdoor retailer brand that, that had a really good review on Amazon. And after 13 days, all three of my boxer briefs had looked like I stapled them to a wall and shot them with bird shot. They had holes all in them. And so that was the biggest thing. I was excited about our Merino base layer as far as leggings and everything, just to wear them because Merino's, it doesn't hold odor. It's super moisture wicking and, you know, it's great, but it's just not durable. So, so yeah, putting nylon in it is, is, um, is, is going to be big as far as, you know, any, uh, you know, any, especially in the leggings. The, the top's not as much, um, but leggings in particular. Leggings, because your, your legs do a lot more moving than your, than your upper body for the most part, and there's a lot more friction created on your legs. So, uh, so yeah, this stuff, uh, adding, adding nylon in the, in, the, in the wool is a big, big part of it. Nice. Yep, absolutely. I didn't even think about my, 
my bottoms, yeah, my I think my bottoms only lasted two years, and then they were pretty much unusable. Yeah. So, and I, I encourage anybody, um, anybody wearing a base layer, you know, as far as, um, and I, I started doing this 15 years ago. Um, if you're wearing, you know, your underwear, obviously you wear you wear boxer, you you may wear a pair of leggings, but uh, but when it comes down to it, you know, if you, uh, I, I'd encourage everybody, you know, to buy a pair of box performance boxer briefs. If you're gonna, uh, 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 if you're a man, first off, performance boxer briefs to start your initial base layer, because I like to say it's moisture management where moisture management is appreciated the most. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Uh, one of the things I want to touch on here real quick too, is can you speak a little bit about Primaloft and the benefits of Primaloft versus some of the other uh, synthetics or even natural fibers that are down or out there? That yeah, absolutely. Primaloft is, is awesome. Um, you know, growing up and 20, 25 years ago, the majority of the, the, the one brand that, that, uh, that was the most well-known was Fensilate insulation uh, made by 3M. And it still has really good applications. You know, we use Fensilate in gloves. Um, Fensilate is used in, um, is still used in, in, in a lot of footwear. And, and it's really good stuff. And it'll keep you warm. But Primaloft has, was designed, um, you know, for military applications. And it really really started hitting the market about 10 years ago in a big way. Uh, the first thing I ever sold with Primaloft was a pair of boots from the former brand I worked for. And the one thing about Primaloft is a couple of the advantages more so than any other insulating uh, product on the market is its weight to warmth. Primaloft is super lightweight and it's super warm. And another thing, Primaloft creates a lot more insulation without loft, meaning if it's compressed, it'll keep you warm. So if you have a Primaloft jacket that is worn between your if your base layer and say an outer layer shell, if that outer layer shell is a little too tight and that Primaloft is held snug, it's still going to keep you warm. So uh, basically, Primaloft insulation is fantastic. We use what's called Primaloft silver, and in our um, in a lot of our outerwear pieces, we have a hundred grams of Primaloft in the body and eighty in the sleeves. Uh, we 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 map out our insulating uh, insulation. You want a little le less you want a little less in the sleeves for mobility if you're raising your gun or drawing a bow uh, versus what you need in your core area. But uh, I wore this weekend. I was working at the Easton Waterfowl Festival, and I I wore my we have a our we have a Primaloft jacket called the PMD. It's like a puffy type jacket. And I named it PMD because they were asking me for names. And the first thing that I they asked me what the first thing I thought of when I thought of a puffy jacket. So I said, why don't we call it Puff the Magic Dragon Jacket? <laughs> well, it was an absolutely crazy name and it stuck. So our PMD jacket, I wore it to this event. And, you know, it was like 40 degrees outside. And then I'd walk into the heated tent where we were working and it may have been, you know, 65, 70 degrees and it was just too warm to wear. It's amazing how a, such a lightweight jacket can be so warm. I mean, it weighs ounces and will keep you super warm. So yeah, if you have not worn Primaloft as your main insulating piece, then, uh, then I, I certainly encourage you to do so. So we make our, uh, you know, our waterfowl jackets, uh, our waterfowl bibs and our jackets are coming out next year have 100 grams of Primaloft in the body, 
uh, 80 in the sleeves. And, uh, you know, our current jacket, the PMD right now has it. Yeah. Cream Aloft is good stuff. And and to kind of piggyback off of you again, so the the nice thing about it, too, is if it gets, like, let's say you sweat in it, like where Jason went into that other tent and you get, uh, it gets a little damp or condensation on it it's still going to remain warm. Whereas if it was like a fully down jacket, it's pretty much worthless. Yeah, absolutely. Point. Yeah, absolutely. It, it really, it really does. And it's, uh, you know, Primo and then in, in wool is another great one as far as a, uh, as far as a natural synthetic, uh, you know, wool, when wool gets wet, it stays warm. Whereas other insulating things like down or, you know, other ones on the market of, you know, synthetic, synthetic fibers don't stay quite as warm as wool or Primo so yeah, and Primaloft is, um, you know, how you create insulation for the most part is, is uh, one thing, you know, we, we're not, we don't sell insulated footwear, but the one thing I learned early on is you want, the warmer you want your boots, the more air you want between your, your boots and your skin. And so, um, so, you know, insulating when you, uh, when you, when you do a lot of layering, a lot of times you'll notice when you put so many different layers on to try to stay warm, it'll feel tight. And that's the one thing, if you're layering, Primalov does a better job than anything as far as maintaining loft, as far as warp to loft. Um, it can, it can, it can still stay warm when compressed under jackets or, you know, if you're wearing a boot and you're lacing it tight to go on a, on a mountain hunt, having those, having Primo Loft is just a, it's just a, it's a superior insulating, uh, superior insulating piece. So. And doesn't it, doesn't it have some um, wind stopping abilities because of how tight the, uh, well, I guess it depends on, on how much Primo Loft is in the, uh, the piece. Yeah, that depends. Uh, that depends. And, you know, obviously when you, when you're, when you're hunting in the wind, that's one thing that, I, I wouldn't say so much. No, I wouldn't say not so much Primo off. Primo off keeps warm, but but ultimately you need to have some type of shell or some type of laminate. Um, and one thing that you know on our products are we make a we're, we make a couple different pieces that um, that are 100% waterproof. And when we use a waterproof laminate, the laminate we use on our windproof material is very much very similar. Uh, so that laminate having a Having a two-layer laminate or a, a three-layer laminate uh, on a jacket is very important because that laminate keeps the wind out, but it also keeps some of your body heat in. Um, that's kind of why, you know, a pair of Gore-Tex boots, um, you know, that, that folks are known for. Gore-Tex is just a brand name of a laminate, and a lot of folks have noticed that that when you wear a pair of Gore-Tex boots, no matter how lightweight they are, they may not breathe quite as good and that's that's because that laminate keeps your keeps your heat in um and that's whereas sometimes if it's a hot day and you're wearing a pair of waterproof boots with a laminate uh whatever brand name that is um it's not quite as uh, as cool as something with a laminate and on the other side of that um a product with a laminate in it whether it's if it's an insulated piece or a shell outerwear is going to keep you warmer so we make a we make an uninsulated rain jacket called the Hailstorm, and it's a 100% waterproof jacket. Now, if you wear that, that's going to keep the heat in. But if you were to layer it with some Primaloft, then you are going to stay super toasty. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. I, I, so 
as far as your windstopper goes, three three membranes is or the three laminate is the highest you go, correct? Yeah, and that's that's basically uh, you know we have a three layer is uh, you know you basically have your inside layer, you have a laminate, and then your outer shell. But we do have a we do have a two layer laminate um, on our like the, like hailstorm jacket has got the laminate, um, and it's basically a two layer laminate. Um, and then but we've got uh, you know we're our waterfowl jackets that'll be coming out next year. They have a it's gonna it's a three in one. Uh, we call it the three L three parka. It's a three layer laminate that has um, uh, that has basically can be worn as a three in one. So you can wear it as a as a basic Primaloft jacket, which is the liner. You can wear the outer shell, which has got the laminate, or you can wear it together as a um, you know to create insulated, windproof, waterproof uh, piece. So uh, you know having having those different layering abilities is certainly a Certainly, certainly a big advantage when you're when you're hunting, when when weather conditions change as they do so much all over the country. For sure, for sure. Okay, uh, I have another question. Uh, the women's line. Are you going yeah. to be growing the women's line here in the future? Uh, I yeah, see. We are. We are right now. Uh, you know, and a lot of our our women's and youth sales are um, determined on you know on basically what re- retailers buy. And we are we are noticing that in particular since COVID, um, since folks were able to spend more time out in the out in the field, that we're selling a lot more women's and kids products. So right now we're offering uh, we offer all the all, offer our harvester series on both the women's and youth line, which is uh, which is our top selling insulated pieces. We offer our pursuit series, which is our top selling lightweight pieces. Uh, and then we offer fleece as well, our utility fleece. We offer a we offer a lightweight uh, kind of the same pieces I was mentioning earlier, the, the the six pieces that I could wear on a trip. Now, one thing that we are offering is our pursuit series. We're offering those in whitetail patterns, turkey patterns, and dove patterns for both ladies and youth. Uh, so we so with long story short, yes, we are going to be expanding those greatly. We're not building any um, any specific uh, waterproof insulated women's uh, waterfowl product yet, but that'll probably be coming in the future. Excellent, excellent. Uh, I know the ladies will be happy to hear that stuff, uh, the listeners. So, Grant, I want to turn it over to you. Uh, we're working on, and we're over an hour here. Um, is there anything that you wanted to touch on? You've been a little bit quiet for a little bit. Uh, not too much. Just to go back to what Jason's saying. I mean, I've been pretty much wearing nomads since it's come out. Never had any complaints to anything. And anybody who hasn't tried it definitely doesn't feel like they're missing out on it. Pick them up some gear and give it a try next time they hit the woods. And anybody who has any questions, I could try to answer anything they have or point them Jason's way. Well, I'll tell you what, Grant. Grant's been fortunate. He's got to field test our apparel a whole lot more this fall than I have. Um, I've been I've been enjoying his social media posts of all the critters he's been killing. Yeah, he's been having a heck of a season. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, hopefully I get some new young boys here this week. But apparently FedEx uh, shipping or sitting in Mississippi the past few days. Oh man, yeah. Sometimes sometimes you'll have that. We use FedEx <laughs> as our as our shipping as our shipping carrier, and uh, they're obviously having. Having employee issues like everybody else, so it's 
uh, I, I, I have had similar problems this fall for sure. Yeah, just like everybody else. It's 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 a wild time we're living in. Well, fellas, I guess we'll wrap up. Uh, Jason, did you have any closing thoughts or Grant that you guys wanted to touch on before we hop off? Tor, not that I can think of, but I, I really appreciate that uh, that y'all had me on here today. Uh, um, you know, if anybody is you know, is interested in, in checking our gear out, it's nomadoutdoor.com. Uh, one thing that, you know, as we touched with the supply chain, we don't have everything that we had planned on producing for this fall. Not everything was able to arrive in a timely fashion this fall. So you're going to be seeing a lot of new product come out from us over the next year. And we were late in being able to uh, get a lot of product out this fall. But luckily now that hunting seasons are in full swing, we've got just about everything in stock that we're going to have in stock for the rest of the year. And, uh, you know, a lot of our products are really popular. So if you see something that you like, um, that's, uh, I would go ahead and buy it now as opposed to waiting waiting next year because as far as at least our fall products concerned, just about everything is in stock that's going to be in stock. But uh, appreciate everybody out there, listeners that are, that are uh, current customers of ours. And if you're not, we'd sure love to have you as a customer in the future. Absolutely. I appreciate you hopping on both you, Jason and Grant. Uh, I will have links for Nomad Outdoors and uh, the Hook product line, as well as Grant's social media. So if you have any potential product questions or or uh, you want to ask Grant anything, you can get in contact with him through Instagram. He'd be happy to answer any questions that anybody might have. All right, so, fellas. Well, thank you, thank you for having me today, and uh, and I hope that uh, that everybody listening out there has a great fall. And it's almost holidays. Thanksgiving's right around the corner. It is. It's wild. This this uh this fall's been burning up real quick. Yeah, that's for sure. Well, guys, I hope uh, I hope the hope the the woods treat you well for the rest of the year. Make sure and send me some pictures. We'll do. Thanks, fellas.